I still remember where I was the first time it hit me. I maybe do have ADHD. And it's funny, I posted a TikTok the other day about having ADHD and a good friend of mine texted me and said, remember when you swore to me you didn't have ADHD? Oh, goodness. Well, listen, if you relate to that at any point in your life, I want to share a podcast that you should tune into. It's called ADHD Aha, hosted by Laura Key. It's candid stories from people who share the moment it clicked that they or someone they know has ADHD. In each episode, you'll hear heartfelt interviews about the unexpected emotional and even funny ways that ADHD symptoms can surface for adults. And it doesn't always look the way we thought it would. So check it out. To listen to ADHD AHA, search for ADHD AHA in your podcast app. That's ADHD AHA with AHA spelled A-H-A. Hello, you sentient balls of stardust. I'm Casey Davis, your host, and this is the podcast where we talk about mental health, self-care, all things that have to do with just kind of surviving in the world that we live in. And I have my good friend, Heidi Smith, who is a licensed professional counselor supervisor with me. Heidi, what are the chances I'm going to get angry emails from the coaching industry about this podcast episode? (laughs) As long as it's just you getting them, I'll be happy. So I wanted to talk about coaching because it's an interesting field and I feel like it requires a little more nuance than like a 60 second TikTok can provide me. Yes, it's an interesting field and I've used coaches, but, and I also have thoughts on them. There's, I think there's certain things that I really appreciate about them, but I think there's certain things to look out for as well. Yeah. And there's like lots of different, there's like recovery coaches in the addiction field and there's ADHD coaches, life coaches, spiritual coaches I've seen. And I financial coaches, financial coaches. Yeah. And I'm kind of like you, like I have worked with really great coaching. I have seen coaching be really, really helpful. And I think that I have too much of a like behind the scenes, like look at coaching. Right. So it makes me extremely cautious about the field in general. Yeah, for sure. At the same time, like just for example, you know, when I see an adolescent for therapy, which I, because I specialize in substance abuse, I get a lot of substance abuse cases. And so if you want me to see your 15 year old son, you know, for individual therapy, I'm almost going to require you to have a coach on board. Mm. So because there are so many moving parts with an adolescent, you know, with school, with discipline, with contracts at home, things like that, that just to be honest, I don't, that's, it's not what I love to do. It's not what I really want to do. I'm a therapist. I want to sit in the office with you and do therapy. Um, I don't want to have to do all that other stuff. And I'm not great at it. And so so I definitely partner with coaches. But but like you said, you know, it's um, the regulations around it and, you know, the personalities behind it. You know, there's a lot of wild cards. Yeah. The places that I've seen coaching work really well is like I know there's a there's a company in Dallas like prides themselves on providing like wraparound services where you'll see a therapist once a week, but then they have these coaches and depending on your level of like mental illness, they'll come spend hours a day with you. Yeah. They call them life development coaches. Yeah. And they'll take you to do your laundry and they'll talk about doing dishes and they might even go to a social event together and talk about social skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I mean, depending on, the, you know, the individual's level of functioning, I mean, it may be as detailed as taking you out to eat and teaching you how to order off a menu and teaching you how to put gas in your car and and things like that. It, basic self-care items, you know, all the way up to, yeah, just taking you to an AA meeting, taking you to play basketball ball, spending time with you, developing social skills, things like that. So, and that's something that I can't do as a therapist. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there are some therapists that I guess do some kind of out of the box things, you know, but for the most part, most of us have an office and you come in and you meet with us for an hour and you leave. And so there are definitely limitations to what we can do. And so there, you know, I think these coaches fill a gap that is really necessary I think what you start getting into is what kind of training do you have? What kind of oversight do you have? You know, and ultimately kind of who's, where's the oversight of those individuals? And there's some, I feel like there's some coaching that's way more cut and dry. So like when the life development coaches, like they're specifically doing like life skills, you know, like we mentioned, or 
in someone who is, I mean, in a lot of ways, like if you get like a personal organizer, like that is, they actually are a coach. Absolutely. Especially a good one that's not only going to engage like, I guess there are some people that are just personal organizers. Like they're going to tell you where to put things. But the the ones that I know that are really good are more like coaches because they're going to examine like, how do you operate in your space? And is it working for you? And like, what's keeping you from the skill of finding what you need? And what if you did it this way? And I actually interviewed a coach recently that I liked and asked her like what she thought was the difference between like coaching and when you start to like get into therapy world, because it's when you get to like life coaching that I feel like, or like relationship coaching, like the Mm -hmm. dating coaches and stuff. All of a sudden, there's this like huge gray area where it's like, how much can you talk about someone's feelings and someone's like outlook and beliefs before you start to get into like therapy world? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like the way she put it. She's like, you know, I can be there to offer a different perspective, but I'm not there to like mine the depths of you, like how to change yours. Yeah. And getting into real deep clinical work, you know, I mean, I, and it is that's such a fine line that it's almost you know, impossible to know exactly when it's been crossed. And same with career coaching. So I worked for an organization that went through kind of, you know, your typical cliche, um, almost like office space, uh, the movie, you know, where they brought in like some consultants and, and, you know, we're kind of reevaluating the whole way they did everything. And as part of that, they brought in a coach and required us to all meet, do like six sessions with the coach which again, that's kind of getting into a whole different topic of, it seemed like a little bit of a boundary violation just to even require that, you know, because mm-hmm. it is kind of this deep personal work. We didn't get to pick the coach. It was there. It was a coach that they brought in. Either way, I did it. Obviously, I played ball and did the coaching. It was very interesting. Like it was, I got to, you know, work on setting career goals and working on using my voice in different ways. And making kind of these micro adjustments at work and how I interact with other people. And it wasn't therapy. It was something different. And and this woman was a trained coach, you know, with all kinds of certifications. It was much more of kind of like a professional, almost chart that she took me through, you know, of, mm-hmm. of questions and actions and behaviors that I could change to meet my goals. It was very goal oriented. Um and not clinical. And she was clearly very well trained. But it was interesting because it definitely, I mean, there was lots of sessions where I cried, you know, Mm -hmm. where like, because I was like facing fears of maybe, you know, using my voice in a staff meeting in a different way. And, you know, maybe asking for a raise. Yeah, things like very out of the box for me. But it was it honed in in a specific area of my life that I probably would have never done with a therapist. So yeah, when I ran the rehab back in the day, one of the things that that was actually really helpful about the coaches that we employed was that like a client would have a session with a therapist and, you know, in a perfect world, like you're being totally transparent with your therapist, even when you kind of, you're like saying things like, oh, I don't think that's going to work. Or I don't like the way you just said that, or I'm feeling kind of uncomfortable in our therapeutic relationship, but like not everybody's there. And it was, it was interesting to see you know, this person would go in, they'd sit with this therapist that they saw as like this expert, usually older, more credentialed, more training. And they'd come out of it and they'd kind of be like, oh, I don't know, like, what I everything that I think about that. Right. And they'd turn around and have a session with their recovery coach and kind of like share those doubts and fears. And that recovery coach was ch- truly like the back door, like the guard of the back yes, door of yes. like keeping them enrolled in recovery of like, yeah, man, I get it. Like I've been there one time. I like they do a lot of more like self-disclosure. Like, let me share my experience with how like I wasn't sure therapy was working, but here's how it was really helpful. And can I answer any questions? And then like, have you have you talked to your therapist about that? Kind of like what you were talking about with like adolescence and homework and stuff. Like it's like somebody else at the door. Yeah, absolutely. And I think by definition, it's supposed to be a less intimidating professional relationship. And so it's, and and I mean, there's actually a whole industry of peer recovery coaching certifications where it really is like peer to peer um, mentorship as opposed to a professional hierarchy. And so I think that's a hundred percent. I mean, it's, um, you're going to get a whole different person 
you know, like you said, for half, for at least 50% of the population goes into therapy. Even I do after years of being a therapist, like the last time I, I did you kind of a, a bout of therapy myself. I mean, like I was kind of, I wanted to impress her and I wanted to make her think I was, yeah, I don't know. It's like I had to confront even myself in that context of realizing that I, I don't always go in like a hundred percent raw, vulnerable, authentic into my therapist's office. And it's also like paying for a friend. And yeah. I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's like, you know, a friend, when I go to a friend, like when I call you for advice, like I, I'm, I'm calling you for like your like casual as a person friendship, like advice on a situation. Like I'm not expecting you to be perfectly objective or to hold some like unconditional positive regard for me. Like you're going to tell me I'm being an asshole if you think I'm being an asshole. Right. Um, and like there might be a day that I call you and you're short with me. And, but like that's a friend that I'm expecting to hear from. But I also like, I, also can hold space for recognizing, like, am I treating this as a reciprocal friendship? Like, do you call me with your problems? When I call you with my problems, am I also interested in your life? And I think coaching can be helpful for people that maybe find themselves in this place where it's like, okay, I need some help, not necessarily like therapy, deep emotional work, but like, I have the situation at work where it's kind of toxic and I need to learn how to be, I'm struggling with my ADHD and I can't seem to get anything clean. I can't get anything organized. I'm missing appointments. And like, I honestly need someone who can kind of serve as that one way street, but yeah, more of a peer, not like an For expert. sure. And it's more, I think also it's more accessible in real time in theory, you know, like depending on yeah, what yeah. kind of situation it's like. Hey, I don't see my therapist for two weeks and I only have a 50 minute session with her, you know, and I'm unpacking all this other childhood stuff, you know, but my coach over here, like I can call him because I just got written up at work and, you know, I'm in my car crying over at lunch and I may not be able to get a hold of my therapist, but that may be something that my life coach can walk me through. And so I think it's more accessible. Um, and like you said, casual in like all the right ways. Yeah. And I think that like if I were to work with a person one on one about their home, like based on like the book that I wrote and the content, that I, like that truly would be coaching. Yes, and absolutely. Because I would be asking like, what messages do you tell yourself about care tasks? Like that's an appropriate question for a coach. And then they'd share. And if they shared like, well, you know, my mother used to beat me when my room wasn't clean. Like if I was in a therapy session where we would go with that is like, let's talk about that. And let's talk about those feelings. And let's maybe think of some modalities or interventions to talk about that trauma. Whereas if I'm going to address them as a coach, I'm going to go, okay, so like, it seems like that's probably affecting the way that you look at cleaning now. So, you know, maybe we can come up with a uh, like a mantra that you can use to remind yourself that, you know, you're in your home and your home is safe now. And, and right. Like that's, yeah, it's like moving, you can kind of see moving around that in a different way than necessarily trying to sit there and unpack it. And that's, and that's like exactly, I mean, that's where you get in the danger zone, you know, is, is like coaching is very dependent on the specific and well, I mean, I guess this is true for everything, like therapists too. You're it's very dependent on that specific person's training, level of integrity, and like level of humility and ego of like what they're capable of and staying in their lane. And so being able to to know that person and know that like they're not trying to play therapist and that they understand what their lane is and that they have a, a, some kind of guiding ethics around like, here's what I do and here's my lane and here's what I don't do. And I, I guess that's true in most industries, right? And so, you know, but finding well, those- there's really lacking that that licensing process though. Yeah. Like, because- Yes, you can get a therapist that's not good, but I think the danger zone is like if you get a therapist that is downright unethical and dangerous, like there is recourse oh, for yeah. reporting that person, right? Yeah. So I and I think that's like the good and I I couldn't help but notice that like one of the green flags, I guess, for coaching is like the great coaching that I've known has been on a team. And I'm not yeah. saying there aren't great coaches that just kind of run their own 
business. I'm sure that there are, but I think that it definitely is helpful when, you know, okay, this, the company that I knew that they would give you a therapist and a coach, or, you know, if you were to encourage, you know, an adolescent to get a coach, like ideally you'd be able to communicate with that person. Well, yeah. And that parent was in charge of that. What you like the, you know, some of those organizations you're talking about, even the the plan, the, the coaching plan is developed by a team that includes therapists. And so, you know, there's oversight, there's p- planning, and there's guiding ethics, even just by nature of being an employee of this organization. You know, like we have obvious ethics as therapists, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. we can't have dual relationships, we can't cross um, boundaries in the area of, um, obviously romantic sexual contact. I mean, basics, right? And so having guiding principles and ethics around that, you know, is of the utmost importance. Yeah. For, for that reason, I think that I most of the time would be more comfortable with someone that was an employee somewhere. Right, like a coaching business with employees. Yeah, um, not saying that there aren't individual contractors out there that are great. I'm just saying that, like, with an independent contractor, you have to do a lot more research and have a lot more discernment when you look at them. And so, I think that's like the good, right? So, let's pause for a second, hear from our sponsors, and then I want to come back and talk about the bad. I've never met a free trial that I didn't like. The problem is, is that I often forget to get out of them before they start charging me, but. I don't have that problem since I started using Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month, and I can clearly see my spending habits. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you, up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll even deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of 500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com struggle. That's rocketmoney.com struggle. Rocketmoney.com struggle. Hey, if you enjoyed my episode on IEPs and you want to listen to more podcast episodes about IEPs, I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season, the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Urtube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. You might have heard me talk about IEPs on my episode, and this latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I checked out these episodes, and I think that they are a great place for you to go after listening to mine. They go into a little more detail and answer a little more in depth about what an IEP is and whether your child needs one. So listen to Understood Explains by searching for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. And why I feel so apprehensive about coaching, even though I know it can be so helpful. You would think that like one of the downsides to coaching are that coaches might dabble in mental health things that really they shouldn't because they don't have that training. They don't have that education. And that's certainly one of the errors, especially when someone is a quote unquote life coach. Like it's kind of nebulous. Like, what do you mean life coach? Like there's not a specific skill set that they're focusing on to help you develop. It's just general life coach. Right. So you might think you come across someone and it's like, wait, but this person's a coach and they have a master's in counseling. Mm. So like, that's the best of both worlds. And unfortunately, unless that person is also like, I know someone who is a therapist and a coach, but she maintains her therapy licensure. Like she still has a private practice and she does therapy work. And then she also has a coaching business where she does like cleaning, organizing, making appointments, and she does not take the same clients for both. Okay. You can only be one or the other. And with that one, she is very clearly delineates, like, I'm helping you develop life skills. Yeah. And I'm talking about how you've organized your pantry and why it's hard to clean and how you're feeding yourself. 
And someone like that, I would be comfortable with because if they were to do something unethical in a coaching space, like their board would still hold them responsible for that. Sure. Right. Because it's like, oh, you know, you're a licensed therapist and but you've got this like side gig where you're taking advantage of people. The part that makes me so nervous is when a person has a master's in counseling, but they don't have licensure and they're working as a coach. Well, and then, I mean, not, and this isn't, I'm not, I don't mean this to be a wholesale judgment, but my first thought is like, well, why don't you have a license? Yeah. And, you know, because it's definitely something somebody who maybe has had their license removed for, you know, who knows why, then it's like they hang up a shingle as a coach. And so either way, I mean, whether they choose not to have a license or not, I would definitely want to look into the history there. And, you know, I have to admit, like, this is 100% a prejudice on my part, but it's a prejudice based on experience. So I'm sure. in no way saying that, like, every person out there, like, and and I, you know, what I've actually heard a lot of is I came across someone the other day and she was a black woman and she said, you know, I have given up my licensure because I'm uncomfortable with the position that puts me in when I'm working with people where I might get, you know, required to turn over medical records. Hmm. Interesting. And here's the thing. I don't I'm not like a marginalized population. And I certainly know that a lot of governmental systems are not set up to protect marginalized people. And so like, I think that's an interesting perspective. And so I'm not saying that anybody that, you know, decides not to get licensure. I also know like having ADHD, I can for sure see someone who is trained and capable that like just couldn't get it together to get licensure. Sure, sure. They couldn't do the admin part. maybe Or get it renewed, yeah. Yeah, or maybe they got a supervisor and their supervisor was really traumatic and they just were like, oh God, I can't do this. Um, maybe they decided I want to be able to go to people's homes and help them with doing laundry. That's really my jam. Like So, so please, if you're listening, it's not a wholesale condemnation, but I do want to share my experience. The only three people that I've ever known to hold the education of either being a therapist or a psychologist that did not hold licensure all had sexual misconduct. Yes. Either before or after, right? Some lost their license because of sexual misconduct and became coaches. Others never got their licensure. And then I come to find out that there's some sexual misconduct going on. Mm -hmm. Like truly that is. And so that's why I personally am just like, now I have to say all three of those people were men, heterosexual cis men. Mm -hmm. So that frankly, may be more of a discussion for like, the red flags of like men that are not holding licensure that want to work with women. Yes. But then again, like there's women out there like Teal Swan. Yeah. Who certainly has some education. I think she has like a bachelor's in psychology or something ridiculous, right? And you know, she's pretty dangerous. Also, Yeah, I mean, it's, gosh, I mean, there's so there's, it's such a rabbit hole when you go down, you know, the unethical things that we've seen in this industry, both coaching and licensed professional counseling or social work. And realizing, you know, when I was in school, you know, they talked so much about it during my ethics class. And I remember thinking, like, who are these people that are like having sex with their clients? It just seemed so like fantastical, you know, almost just like that's got to just be like your one off that never happened. I mean, you know, and then when I started working in the field, I mean, it's just it happens left and right. And, you know, realizing that this is that nobody's actually above it. And it's one of the things as a supervisor and as a teacher that I've really, really been passionate about is helping people realize that um, you may think you're an amazing person with a great kind of ethical grid, but you find yourself in some blind spot and it can happen quicker than you realize. And especially, you know, yeah, I mean, it, it happens to male therapists a lot. It happens to women therapists a lot. Yeah. If you've been practicing for any amount of time and you can... Like, I almost like don't believe someone who's been in practice like decades and decades says that they've never been attracted to a client. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're not, like, if you can't be open about, you know, that transference and countertransference, which is kind of a clinical term for for that energy exchange that happens and, and those feelings that happen in the context of the relation, the therapeutic relationship. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's insane to think that um, your human beingness 
you know, wouldn't show up in that context. Well, and it's interesting because I think that would prevent like a counseling student or an intern or an associate from bringing up that they were feeling that is this fear that like, they're going to think I'm someone who is going to be unethical. But like the difference between therapists that are ethical and they or like the difference between therapists that engage in sexual misconduct and therapists that don't is not whether or not they've ever felt attracted to a client. It is whether or not they've ever been open with a peer about that and asked for like accountability around working out that transference. Absolutely. And have a healthy amount of fear of themselves. Like, right. hey, I'm I'm not above this. I mean, I'm human and I'm feeling a certain energy in this room that's scaring me and I need to be open with it and seek counsel and seek supervision and figure out how I can therapeutically navigate that or how I can end this relationship. And so I 100% agree. I mean, it's about the humility to um, be honest and ask for supervision. And I think that's kind of what... I hesitate or what scares me about the coaching field right now as it stands being kind of like the Wild West, because you can find companies that offer certifications, you can find companies that offer training. But I think what the general public doesn't understand is like the difference between licensure and certification. Mm. Like licensure is run by your state government. And they have big groups of people that come together to decide like what kind of education a person has to have and what kind of training they have to have. And then there's this centralized place where they oversee all the people that have licenses and they're all under the same ethics. And if you report someone the same, you know, everyone gets the same kind of investigation. Whereas certifications, like certifications can be great. Like I want to go to someone that has a certification for XYZ. I want to go, like if I did want to coach, I would want someone that had a certification. But the general public needs to understand that like, I, as Casey Davis, could wake up tomorrow, make a PowerPoint presentation and offer a certification at the end. And people could listen to my... Right. And just print out a certificate. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it's that easy. So you have to look... When someone says, I'm certified as a life coach, you have to go figure out, like, let me Google that company. Like, was that a... The coach that I interviewed, she did a nine-month training. Yeah. With, like, supervised hours. Boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas other people can take a weekend course. Yeah. And so I think, you know, I really don't believe that like there, I think it's easy to get into that elitist space where it's like therapists are better than coaches. Um, and that's not true. And they're different. And the, the kinds of people that are therapists are not different or inherently more ethical than the kinds of people that become coaches. It's just that there are systems set up within a licensure world to provide a place for that supervision so that people can talk about that, that provide a place where we know that everyone's getting that same education on those sort of dangers. And there's that oversight so that if someone does mess up, we can... Absolutely. And then there's, I mean, continuing education requirements and, you know, it's an ongoing, the license is an ongoing process. It's not a one-time training over a weekend. And what I would see sometimes with coaches... And it was typically, again, it was older men who would do coaching. And often what I would see is they would work for organizations, but they would only be independent contractors. Sure. So that when they kind of overstepped a boundary, there was no firing. There's no employment. Like It can just move on. Record. Yeah. They just, the person usually approaches them. They don't want to make a big to-do or a big, and they just go, you know what? You need to go. We're not going to renew your contract. And they go. And they go to the next place. And there's not like this record of who's been investigating or who's been keeping up. And it's really unfortunate. And they can go to a different state and they can do this. And so that's why I feel sometimes really, I think it's really careful. I certainly, and again, I know this is prejudice, but it's one of those things where it's like, I'm sure there are really great, loving stray dogs, but like, it's still safer to say never pet a stray dog because like, it's just not worth accidentally petting the wrong one. Sure. Like I just would never send a woman to get a coach that was a heterosexual cis man. And I'm sorry to all of the men out there that (laughs) maybe are the best coaches in the world that love to work with women, but like, I just never would. Yeah. It's too risky. I don't know any, none of the coaches that I currently work with or refer to, it's all gender specific. And so I definitely, I think to err on the side of caution 
you know, men coaches should work with male clients and female coaches should work with female clients. And that's not to say that's not fail proof. I mean, I have some room for like, well, and I have some room for identity too. Like, sure. I've never seen like a gay man prey on a straight woman. Right. Yeah. And if you are, you know, and if, if you Sexually. are, a, yeah, yeah, that's true. Everyone yeah. can prey on anyone. Yeah. Or, you know, if you're a gay woman, like that's, it's a similar dynamic working with someone who falls in line with who you would be attracted to, who sure. you would see in that era. You know sure. what I mean? Like, I guess that's who what you, I'm getting. Who the potential lies for you to sexualize. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I mean, the real question is like, is this the type of person you would fuck? <laughs> Right. Like, let's be real. Right. And not not even as a client. I'm not saying the client should ask that. I'm saying that, like, if yes. you're the type of person that coach would fuck, probably yes. don't go with that coach. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and again, not because, y'all, there aren't some out there that are amazing and wonderful. I just would be hesitant, I think, because of – and I think the coaching industry will get there. Like, I think we'll get to a place where, at least when it comes to, like, life skills coaching, maybe we have a, a, a better set of – guiding principles. Of regulatory. Yeah. Well, and the interesting thing is, I mean, the only pitfall isn't even like, you know, the idea of sexual integrity, but I mean, so many families that I work with, which I work in the addiction field, um, have been, at least they claim now I haven't done my own investigation, but you know, I, I talked to, I work with young adults. And so I talked to moms and dads that have been burned financially by mm. coaches, interventionists, you know, because interventionists is another, you know, and, and there's different Wild words, West. right? And case management, uh, you know, that's another kind of interchangeable word as, um, you know, the, in the addiction industry is the idea of these case management people who kind of come in and get really involved with the family and help guide them as to how to deal with their son and where to send them and things like that. Now, I want to say, I mean, I, most of the case managers, interventionists that I work with, obviously, if I'm working with them, I respect them and trust them and so value the space that they're in and the work that they do and they're needed. So I, I want to make that clear. But, you know, there are, there's bad eggs and a lot of the abuse that I've seen actually has really been financial. Hey, you need to pay me, you know, $20,000 for a six month contract of case management and then they don't do shit. It's like two phone mm. calls a month, you know, I mean, and it's and they can't ever get their money back. And and so, yeah. Think, and I'm kind of with you where it's like I so va like it's such a needed role and I do value it. I just feel really, really bad for clients and families because you almost have to be like someone like me, someone like you, someone inside the industry who's all connected to know what you're looking at. And that's oh, what's yeah. unfortunate. It's yes. like, there's no way to know what you're looking at. Yeah. I mean, a family will call and tell us that they're working with a certain interventionist or a certain case manager. And it's like, we all roll our eyes, you know, like to ourselves and just think like, oh shit, it's not, he's not the worst, but he's not the best. And you're probably not going to get your money's worth and, you know, and whatnot. And so, yeah, it is. It's like, you have to kind of have your own experience, your own insider information and families get taken all the time. And I always felt like there's kind of like two kinds of people that become therapists. There are like people that have dealt with their own shit, then go, wow, I found that process so valuable. I would love to be the person that helps other people engage in that process. And then there's people that are like, they have not dealt with their own shit. And they have like a weird savior complex and a very like, it's the kind of people like you and I used to joke that like, we would look around in counseling school and be like, some of you should just be rescuing puppies. Yeah, please. Like that, like, <laughs> like, just, just don't like if you're, if that's what you like, just right. don't like if you really need to like bleed heart all over someone, like go rescue puppies, like don't do this or yeah. that arrogance of like, I can help people, I can fix people, I can save people. And I feel like you run into that same thing when it comes to the coaching industry, where it's like Absolutely. there's two kinds of people that become coaches. There's people who have like figured some stuff out and gone through some difficult times and came out the other end with a lot of wisdom and a lot of practical skills and realized I love, I've, I've been telling my friends, I love this. Like, I feel like I could help people. And, and then the other person is like a person that goes through like their experience and then believes that their experience is gospel and then decides, I just want people to pay me 
to tell them my experience. Yeah, there's a lot of narcissists in this industry. And again, there's a lot of narcissists licensed in, not. in every industry too. I mean, you know, so it's like it's hard to know because they present well and they sound good, you know, but sometimes they're definitely a one trick pony, you know, I mean, and they, uh, what they and- have to offer is what worked for them. And, and that's kind of all they've they've got. Yeah. So I wanted to share with you at the end of this episode, I'm going to play the interview that I had with this coach. And I thought it'd be interesting for me to share with you, like as I was looking at her website, like what I as a person who's really familiar with the industry, like saw that gave me like green flag vibes. Okay. Right. Okay. I'm going to pull it up. Hang on. So it's ADHD coaching. So off the bat, I love that there is a specific focus. Yes. Right. And on the front page, you can see prices and they're per session. I like that. I'm not saying it's the only right way to do it, but I would say if someone's asking me to prepay for six months of something before I've had any experience with them, it raises, I'm more cautious, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. Like I'm going to need them to really justify to me what that's about. And, but right on the homepage, can you diagnose me? No, coaches do not diagnose. And there's a whole paragraph about that, right? Do you work with kids? No, I do not work with kids. How do you know what you're talking about? And then there's a list of where she got some certifications, where she got trained, a little bit about herself. And so she's and, already saying on the website what she doesn't do, which I think is... Yes. Yeah. Here's what I do do and here's what I don't do. Yeah. And so when you go to her like sessions and services, you know, obviously you have like the individual coaching sessions. and But then she has group coaching sessions. And listen to that sandbox a weekly group motivation session for neurodivergent creatives on Thursdays. It's four sessions per month about what you'd pay. And then she has a price. Um, hype yourself up about your creative practice and hype others up. And it's just like a, you know, when you're feeling stuck. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I that to me, way green light. Because yeah. it's like very much I'm a peer and I'm going to bring together other peers. And it's about like pushing each other and encouraging each other and helping get unstuck from like a creative process or maybe a work process. Well, yeah. And and there's not a lot of clinical jargon too. You know, that's another red flag for me is when I hear um, a coach talking, saying a lot of clinical jargon, like, you know, trauma, just even that it's like, well, you know, work on their trauma. It's like, are you going to, do you need to be working on their trauma? You know? So even just the the words that she's using. And then the next thing is, Yeah, there's no clinical jargon. Okay, so then we have group body doubling sessions. Get more things done with other neurodivergent people. It's great for those who thrive on seeing other people's energy and progress. And I'm like, see, that's great. Yeah. Like, we're going to get on a video call and get, you know, get something done around our house that we need to get done that's hard to motivate ourselves for. And then she also has a queer joy peer support group. Um, where we get together and we pull from each other's collective wisdom, share weekly wins, and even make friends. So off the bat, I love that she has outlined some very specific skill takeaways that you'll get from her. It's not just, I'm going to help you with your life. It's like, oh, she's really honed in on like, I'm here to facilitate. I'm here to look at specific skills and help you get unstuck so you can access those skills. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I mean, I love it. I think even just the words about, you know, how she used the word, we're going to hype you up and really motivating and supporting is what the whole purpose is. And so, I mean, I couldn't agree more that there's a lot of green flags there in the way that she's presenting what she does in a really authentic way. I love it. One thing that is a red flag for me, and I don't even know that it means that it's always bad. But man, I've never met a spirituality coach that I trusted. Mm, man, that's such and a the gray reason, area, right? And the reason is, is because by nature of the very like subject of spirituality, it's just too easy to create a power dynamic. Yeah, I don't even, what is, I mean, I don't even know what is a spirituality coach. I don't like, are they, did they go to seminary? Are they trained in a specific, yeah, I don't. Might be, might not be, but I'm thinking like a la yeah. Teal Swan type characters, but others like that I've come across that maybe are talking about teaching meditation or that could teaching turn mindfulness. into a cult leader real quick. <laughs> That's where I go. I, it like... just makes me nervous. Like I would rather find a community to help somebody plug into. Yeah. 
or a group something or another versus like a one-on-one, I'm going to teach you about spirituality. Just because again, like it's so easy to get into this area where all of a sudden it's like, I'm the person that holds the sacred knowledge. Right. And I know you better than you know yourself. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of power and influence when you start, you know, throwing around spirituality. I think there's an opportunity. It just depends. If if a life coach is getting involved in helping somebody seek, um, taking, hey, let's go visit, you know, a a Buddhist temple. Let's go visit a synagogue and let's go try out a mosque and, and let's explore some different options here and see if anything fits. I think that's great, you know, versus somebody who's trying to guide and lead in a way that creates a power dynamic. And so, man, it's, it's so much of it is dependent on the person. And I I mean, I think that's the good and the bad, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. I could see somebody being an amazing coach who helps somebody explore spirituality, if they had like incredible integrity and ethics and kind of guiding principles of here's what I do. And here's what I don't do. If somebody's on a narcissistic power trip with very little insight into themselves and they're a, a quack, you know, who's just out to make money, and there's no way to know that until there's like kind of bodies laying <laughs> in the background. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. metaphorically, you know, until you've seen the work that they've done and there's already been damage. And so it's that's a hard learning curve, you know? Yeah. And I mean, that's true of any, I mean, that's not even a coaching specific thing. Like I, you know, cause we all know priests and pastors and all sorts of people in really, cause it comes with that spiritual authority. Yeah. I think yeah. that for a lot of people that goes hand in hand. Yeah. And that idea of giving somebody spiritual consent in your life. I mean, you even get into that with 12 step sponsor sponsorship, you know, is like, I'm going to put myself in a vulnerable position and give this other person in my life, like a level of spiritual consent for them to give me feedback and explore this kind of um, in-depth area of my life. And so there's, there's a lot of opportunity for abuse there. I love that term, like spiritual consent or even like emotional consent, because I'm kind of someone that believes that like, it's okay to give a person feedback if they're doing something really harmful, like anyone, right? Like if if I know of a therapist and I don't know them, but they're doing something harmful for me to be like, hey, I need to like give you some feedback here. And if there is something I can do via their license, you're fine. But if I know someone else and like, it's not that like I have to have someone's permission to like point something out to them. But I do think that when it comes to like just areas of like, hey, this is where I think you're wrong about something or this is where I think you need to grow about something or this is where I think you have like a mistaken belief about something. It's not that I can't point it out. But to me, the spiritual comes into it like if that person then says like, okay, thanks. Or they say like, no, that's not it. That's to me where it's like I don't then get to like push and argue with them and be like, no, it is. And here's why. And here like engage with them. Unless that's someone who has given me that like spiritual consent, that's a friend that has said, I I welcome you to push back on me. Yeah, that's, Um, and I mean, I think it's a great term. I actually, I'm sure it's like a common term, but I learned it from my husband. My husband uses it a lot in in the um, context of 12-step sponsorship and and with your spouse and with your friends and that, like you're talking about, that there's this small circle for me that that I've allowed somebody in my life and given them that spiritual consent. We're like, you know what? I'm open. Like you hold a place in my life where like you get to tell me the truth at any time. Like I've given you that spiritual consent. I haven't always, it's not always like a formal conversation, you know, but it's, it's sort of a, an unspoken thing where it happens in really intimate friendships and intimate relationships. And now this is like a little off topic, but It reminds me of a conversation I had with a psychologist friend of mine where we were talking about like the difference between taking accountability for something in your community and be like having to like let people walk all over you and just like treat you like dirt because you messed up. Mm. And like who has the right to like tell you that your accountability is or isn't good enough or any of that. And she had this great metaphor and she was like, you know, it's important like if you're in, you know, you're in your like home or your spiritual home or whatever And people are saying like, hey, we need you to come out and talk about this. And like taking accountability is like stepping out and like opening your door and letting people look in. 
and be like, yeah, okay, this is what's going on inside. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that you have to let anybody, just anybody come in your house and start like rifling through shit. Right. Like that you need specific consent for. Yeah, absolutely. I think having those personal boundaries, which is a whole different podcast, you know, but to understand like who, who deserves spiritual consent in my life Mm -hmm. and, you know, again, a different podcast, but that idea that employers, you know, especially in the helping industry, I think oftentimes think that this is a space where just because like we're working in the helping industry, like we're all, we're going to run our staff like a, you know, like a big spiritual Um, feedback session all the time. And I think that can get very abusive very quickly. And that um, we're going to definitely do an episode on that because I could talk for days on that. Oh, I could too. And I've been a victim of it as well myself. Yes. So not maybe not victim, but I've experienced it for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Heidi. I mean, I feel like that's a good overview of like the good, the bad, the ugly. I think the bottom line is do your research. Yeah. Honestly, whether it's a therapist or not, but just be aware of some of the potential drawbacks. I think that also what I've seen is I've seen someone get under the thumb of a really unethical coach. And then they're like you said, like you look around, there's like bodies on the ground and then they want recourse. Right. And it's like, and you have to, and I think that's where this comes from. Like, so I hope people can kind of understand why I feel so cautious about this, but it's like, if you've ever had to break it to someone who has been truly like violated emotionally, physically, spiritually by someone that they, yeah, financially by someone that they believed to be an expert coming to help them. If you've ever had to break it to that person, oh, actually there's nothing you can do. There is no one that you could tell. There is no way to stop them. There is no way to put a mark on their record. There is no way to alert the public. I mean, like... There's no governing authority. Yeah. There is no... Yeah. Like, it's just so difficult. It is. Yeah. So I just... That's the thing that I want people to be aware of and look at that. And so so next, I'm going to sit down and talk to actually that ADHD coach and hear from them what they think about the bounds of coaching, their personal experience about sort of green flags that they see in the coaching industry versus some red flags that they see to help the people that are listening that might find coaching helpful to them to make them feel a little bit more equipped to be able to pick out a coach. I can't wait. Thank you, Heidi. Thanks. Rachel, thank you so much for being here. Will you introduce yourself to the audience? Hi, I'm Rachel Ambrose. I run Porchlight Coaching. I use she or they pronouns, and I'm really happy to be here. I am really glad that you're here too, because um, I was just speaking with my friend Heidi. She's a therapist, and both of us have worked with coaches before. So we were sort of talking about like the good, the bad, the ugly. And I wanted to bring in a coach and talk specifically about some of the green flags and red flags that people can look for if they feel like a coach would be helpful to them. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get into it. Okay, so one of the things that I loved that you said was the difference between whether how someone is presenting themselves as an expert. Can you talk a little bit about like green flags and red flags there? Yeah. So obviously, when you go to a therapist, they are an expert in mental health, in whatever their modalities are. And I think it's really important when people go to coaches that it's very clear that they and the coach are on the same level for two reasons. A, I think that it's very important that the client is centered in the entire coaching relationship. And in order to center the client, the coach needs to make sure that there's no weird power dynamics at play. And so in order to do that, the coach really needs to meet the client where they're at and be able to work with the client following the client's lead. And if you style Mm. yourself as an expert, there's already sort of that initial assumption of, oh, this coach knows more than me. Like this coach, like somehow got like the magical tips and tricks that I've never heard of and cannot ever come up with in my own brain. And that's not a place where I personally coach from. And that I think is a particularly useful dynamic to engage in. And I think that centering the client and making sure that the client knows that they are fully empowered to take the lead 
puts the client in a really interesting position because I don't know about you, but so many times where we express struggles with being neurodivergent folks in a neurotypical society, we're just sort of handed these boilerplate advice bits that don't actually help us out in the long term. And a coach should really empower the client to be able to explore and come up with their own best solutions. So one of the things that you mentioned to me when we talked was, and I guess we would call this maybe like a yellow flag when we were talking about like someone who presents themselves on this pedestal as an expert, it's kind of a red flag. You want someone who's a peer, but also like in the marketing, when you see language about like, try my proven method, right? Or like, my, it's like, it's okay if somebody has a workshop or whatever, but sometimes in the marketing, you can tell that there's like intention to exploit somebody's vulnerability, and like they talk about cures and fixes. And um, there's this really awful woman on TikTok right now who is making TikToks about how like her son used to have autism and he, you know, she has cured him. And if you want to book with me one-on-one -on -one consultations and like, I will coach you through what to do. Right. Oh my gosh. And so like immediately, you, you know, we should have red flags about like curing, like probably not. Right. No, absolutely. And then not. you get in and it's like all of this, like, let me sell you MLM supplements. But that would be I mean, my first red flag is anyone who says they can cure autism. But that if somebody maybe a new parent wasn't, you know, didn't know anything about autism. But that should be the first thing is like curing, fixing, you know, you're inherently broken. But I have the magical answer that I've put behind this paywall. Yes, yes, yes. Subscribe to my newsletter where I will break down five easy steps for you to work with your autistic child and cure them of their... No, absolutely not. We don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You mentioned the issue of training. Like, mm -hmm. obviously, there's no licensure. There's no like training across the board. But how can we look at if somebody says like, oh, I'm trained, what can we look at to know whether that person maybe has worthwhile training or not? Yeah. That's a great question. And I think that it requires clients to be so much more canny than they would be if they were having the same conversation with a therapist. Because yeah, coaches should go to coach school. They should go to ADHD specific coach school if that's the particular niche that you're trying to get help in. And some really great programs out there include ADCA, which is the education program that I went through. It's a nine month process. If somebody tells you that they took like a weekend course and how to become a life coach, don't book them. It's a really intricate process because it's a completely different way of engaging with a person than the typical conversation with anyone else might go. And you should be learning from mentors and certified master level coaches some good things to look for include ADCA badging or IACT badging or PAC badging on a coach's website. And those are all training programs and credentialing programs that cater specifically to ADHD coaches. Thank you. So the last little um, category that you mentioned when we were talking was the idea of like a coach's willingness to refer out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that my golden rule for coaching is know your lane, love your lane, stay in your lane. And so I will refer out for two reasons. Well, many reasons, but two big oh, ones. Sorry, hang on. One is I say coaching and therapy can work side by side, but they but coaching cannot cross into therapy. And what I mean by that specifically is in regards to trauma and mental illness in terms of biochemistry. So if a client were to come to me and say, I have ADHD and depression, but my depression is really well managed and I'm working with a therapist alongside your coaching, that's great. We can play ball. If a client comes to me and says, I have ADHD and depression. I've been in, a, in and out of therapy for some time. I'm currently out of therapy. Yeah, we can give it a shot. And if it turns out that the depression is 
um, in need of adjustment or if there's trauma that comes up within the course of the coaching relationship, I will immediately refer out because I can work with we can we can talk about trauma during the context of a session. I do not process trauma at all. I don't touch it. That is for people who are way more qualified than I am, and it they they should be able to be accessed. I've even sat on client calls where they have opened up like psychology today with me, and I've bodied all with them while they have. Um, made those initial reach outs to their local therapists. So there's one thing that you said that I highlighted when, you know, you and I were emailing back and forth, and I just want to kind of read it and then have you maybe expand on it for our last little spot here. But you said another really important element of coaching is its concreteness. A client might want to work on their blog. For example, a coach would say, what specific things would you like to get done on the blog between this session and next? What feels sustainable? What feels like something that could fit easily into your schedule this week? Once the client is narrowed down what they might be a realistic goal for the time frame, the coach might offer to check in with them a few days and see how it's going. I love how you put that because I think what can be hard is like a therapist can do therapy and they also sometimes provide what can what is kind of like coaching. Like they can give you practical practical advice, actionable advice. Um, but they can also do the like, hey, we're not gonna necessarily take action items. We're gonna like delve in and talk about feelings and talk about psychology. And so I appreciated that you brought that up because I think if somebody is working with a coach and they're not walking away with concrete, actionable things, then that would kind of raise a flag about like, what am I doing with this person? Like, what are they trying? Like, there's no ambiguous healing this person can give me, right? Like there should, I should be walking away with concrete things. And so can you talk to that for just a second? Yeah. So I think that having a specific outcome within the course of a session is a really important distinction from therapy. I personally have never walked into a therapist's office and had the therapist sit me down and say, okay, what are we talking about today? And whether it's, you know, mindfulness or whatever the topic may be, okay, what would be a successful metric for you to walk out of this session with? And then partnering with the client to make sure that they get there. Um, and I think that like people who are not familiar with coaching or have never been coached before, that can be a really important distinction to make between a coaching session and the therapy session, because it's the client is totally in the driver's seat and the coach is just there to make sure that they get to where they want to go. And then it's like, okay, like we've gotten to this action plan and now you have some concrete steps to go and work on your blog. And do you need any support from me in order to fully accomplish this task over the next few days? Yeah. That's really helpful. It reminds me almost of like when you go bowling and they have like the um, bumpers that they can bring yes. up. It's like, this is you and your journey. You're going down the lane, but like I can help act as those bumpers of like, you know, setting concrete goals, checking in with how you're feeling, checking in with, you know, what you're thinking and being maybe some accountability, maybe some different perspectives. Like I like that idea of you know, I'm moving, I'm in charge of my journey, but from a practical sense, like I need someone to kind of help me with these practical things as I go through. And again, like practical things are going to include like, Hey, I'm, I'm anxious about this, or I'm telling myself that I'm not good enough to do this. So like, yeah, as a coach, you're going to come up with those sort of things. And so knowing how to talk to someone about those things is okay. Um, but, you know, I think that you're right. It just takes a good coach to know, you know, when are we talking about, hey, let me offer you a different perspective or let me share my experience with feeling like I wasn't good enough. Let me encourage you. You know, hey, have you ever heard, you know, here's a saying that I heard that really helped me like Absolutely. that versus getting into like, well, when when was the first time you thought you didn't feel good? Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so that's really helpful. Yeah, I, that's really helpful. So um, go ahead. I like to say that coaching is for the present and future you, whereas therapy sometimes can focus more on the past. Like I would never ask like, when was the first time that you felt like you weren't good enough? Like, you know, that deep historical self narrative isn't really for coaches to touch a lot of the time, but 
if you are having issues with adjusting your expectations when it comes to like cleaning your kitchen, we can dig into maybe where those internalized expectations are coming from and whether they're appropriate for you to continue having and what you might want to replace them with. Yeah, that's helpful. Rachel, thank you so much. Uh, where can people find you if they want to learn more about your services? They can find me at um, my website is welcome to the porchlight.com. And they can find me on Instagram at porch.light.coaching. And you do ADHD coaching, correct? I do. Um, and ADHD awesome. coaching. I work with uh, people who have the combo meal of ADHD and autism as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts.